I first left theological college, I worked as an assistant minister in a church full of beautiful stained glass. It's a, uh, a stunning art form, isn't it? Uh, on the rear wall of that church was a depiction of Jesus teaching what was almost certainly the Sermon on the Mount. I remember one day uh, sitting, uh, standing and, and staring at the, uh, the picture and, and having a conversation with the rector of the church about it. He explained that during the Middle Ages, what was typical on the rear wall of a church was a depiction of hell, of God's judgment and anger. Here's an example in the, uh, the next slide. I think my clicker stopped working, Theo. If you just want to change that for me, thanks. That would be great. There's a depiction of the doom paintings that you got in the Middle Ages. It was a way, apparently, to warn people not to sin. As they left the heavenly moment of the Eucharist, they exited with a warning that if you sin, this is where you're going to end up, away from the presence of God and in the fires of hell. The, uh, the Reformation changed this feature in our churches, but the Sermon on the Mount in that church there was an echo somewhat, a, a reminder of the law of Christ and its call on our lives. As I speak with students day to day about their understanding of God, two quite different ideas about God tend to emerge. One is that he's a God of love. And in their minds, that means that he's somewhat desperate for their love. It doesn't matter what they do or think or believe, he loves them no matter what. He's something of the powerless and completely permissive parent, the parent who desperately wants their child to be their friend but will never really get there. The other picture they often have of God is God the judge, God the punisher. You know, doesn't God make people sick because they did bad things? One student asked me this week. Doesn't he send earthquakes as punishments? God controls everything, so he made COVID happen. He wanted it there. He made wars occur. He makes people suffer for what they do wrong. Those are the kind of comments I get quite a bit from students. Now, both pictures, of course, are distortions. But even we Christians fall into those distortions quite regularly. We can easily think that our behaviour doesn't really functionally matter. God's love will sort it out. Or that the behaviour of our wider society doesn't really matter. We kind of shrug our shoulders when we read, read the census data or look around our churches and don't see quite enough children or youth to prevent St Philip's from shutting its doors in 30 or 40 years' time. I mean, sure, we, we feel it. We do feel that. But maybe not enough. Or alternatively, we can feel the weight of God's eyes on us, feel like we're never really adequate before him. We don't pray anywhere near enough. We know how important prayer is, but we habitually fail to do it. We get stuck in the same thoughts, same behaviours, same lack of self-control, that we feel like it's just too hard. But all the while with the idea that God is probably pretty angry at us, at least disappointed, at least shaking his head. Now, I want you to hold these two, two ideas in, in your mind, particularly those distorted pictures uh, for this sermon today, because they do bring up the, the themes of the love and judgment of God. Uh, those two ideas are paramount in the story of King Josiah. I introduced him last week as we read that strange story of the two prophets from the divided kingdom, and we saw a prophecy about Josiah. He, he would be the great king who would come and he would correct the sins and mistakes of the nation and, and we assume bring in the mercy and the love of God. In today's story, he's born. We, we finally meet him. We, we enter into his story. And in doing so, I think God brings us to a deeper and a fuller and more wonderful picture of God and who he is 
and what what his love for us really means. Well, the story begins with Josiah taking the throne. Now, he's eight years old. Eight years old when he takes the throne. And my son George, George, my son George turns eight in about a week, and he he likes to jump on the trampoline and play imaginary games. He likes making dress-ups out of paper and loves watching Minecraft videos on YouTube. How would you feel if George was running the country? Well, here's Josiah, the eight-year-old king. This is what it was like in ancient times. Theo, could you just turn me down a little bit on the, uh, the mic? I'm just getting a little bit of booming here. Thanks. Well, there's Josiah, and he's, he's immediately described as one who did what is right. 300 years have gone by since the story we did last week, and the vast majority of kings, both in the northern kingdom in Israel and in the southern kingdom in Judah, the vast majority have been horrible. The northern kingdom was worse, and they, they've just been destroyed, taken captive by Assyria. But now Judah's gone down the same path. They've been terrible in the last few kings that we've read about. Um, we've just witnessed in the story the reign of Manasseh, who was a king so bad, so corrupt, that he even sacrifices his own son in fire to his god. And then we get this huge ray of light here. Josiah, a good king, finally, after Manasseh. And then suddenly the story jumps. Fast forwards, 18 years. He takes the throne at eight and then 18 years later. And we're like, hang on, what happened? Where'd those 18 years go? There's a lot wrong with ancient Judah at this point. Idols and child sacrifice and failure to help the poor. There's oppression. It looks like it takes him 18 years to do anything. What on earth is he doing that whole time if he's supposed to be a good king? Uh, the question, I think, is, is probably a strategy by the narrator to introduce some doubt, to get us confused and wanting to read more, wanting, wanting us to say, we really need a story that will characterise him, a story that will help us to decide whether he really was a good king or not, and that's exactly what we get. We get a story that follows. Josiah, what happens in the story is Josiah sends his secretary to arrange repairs in the temple of God, the place was falling apart, in complete disrepair. Obviously not many had used it. The governments of the, uh, the previous governments didn't really care about it. Finally, Josiah is doing something about this. And it seems that during the repair work, the high priest finds what he calls the book of the law. It's probably the book of, named Deuteronomy that's in our Bibles. They had lost it what seems like hundreds of years earlier lost it or just not cared enough to look at it. In my kids' Bibles at home, when they do this story, they always have like a worker breaking apart a wall and hidden inside the wall is the book of the law that they pull out. But that's not really here in that story. I get the sense that maybe it was just sitting on a lectern the whole time and no one had ever read it. It was just sitting there gathering dust. God's word, God's law, and they left it aside. The God of the universe speaking to them and they just left the generations to forget what it said. Well, they bring it to the king and they read it to him. Now, if you know Deuteronomy, you'll know that its basic message is, look, God has rescued you. God loves you. He's rescued you. So keep loving and serving him. And if you do that, then things are going to go so well for you in the land. It's going to have a great life there. But if you don't, it's going to be absolute disaster. And they read it and Josiah hears the words and realise that, that they haven't followed God at all. And he tears his clothes. 
as the words are being read. It's an ancient sign of deep and serious anguish, a sign of mourning and despair and disaster. What are, what are we going to do? So Josiah comes up with a plan and sends his men to find a prophet or a prophetess, in our case actually, of God and ask God what to do. And so they go to Huldah, who is described like this in verse 14. So the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan and Isaiah went to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Keeper of the wardrobe. It's a strange phrase. It probably means that their family were clothes makers and and merchants of some kind. But remember what happened just before this journey. Josiah tore his clothes. And now he sends men to see those who sell new clothes. He's going with the hope of replacing his symbol of despair and terror with a symbol of a new beginning. There's a great little storytelling feature there, I think. And then we get... Uh, Hulda's prophecy, her oracle, and it falls into two parts, two rather disturbing parts. The first concerns the nation. The second, the king himself. The king's job was, was to represent his people, and his actions are supposed to be on behalf of the people. But Hulda's, so Hulda's words uncomfortably divide them from each other. The first oracle basically says that disaster is coming. You will not get new clothes. The people have abandoned God, and God is angry about it. And here we have rising to the surface one of our common pictures of God that we raised at the start, the angry, the judging God, the God who looks on sin with hatred, who looks on our behaviour with anger. We don't see mercy or forgiveness here. We see no way out. We see a king who has realised his nation's crimes. He seeks the compassion of God, but he does not find it. And then the second oracle comes. It's a mercy of sorts to, to him, to King Josiah, but him alone. You, King Josiah, have humbled yourself. You've torn your clothes. Your remorse is genuine, so you'll die in peace. That is, you won't go through seeing the disaster that's coming on the nation. And that's the end of the chapter. The rest of the story comes next week, or if you read ahead in the next chapter. There's only been a handful of times in my life where I can remember coming into contact with people that I really didn't want to be around. Um, I remember in year nine or ten becoming friends with the naughty kid in school. And we were friends for a while, but after too many nights of sneaking out at one in the morning and eventually making my only ever visit to a police station, I discovered I just really didn't want to hang around him all that much anymore. Uh, The friendship withered not long after that. Most women I speak to about it, unfortunately, don't have to think very hard of people in their lives they have felt uncomfortable around. Far too many stories of men who have made them afraid or feel afraid or unsafe or worse. We confront a description of God in this story that for many people would make them feel uncomfortable. For many, the idea of a God who is merciless, who, who chooses disaster over compassion, is not a God that they want to be around. And if that kind of God is real, it does send a shadow over our whole existence. This is the God who is behind the depiction of hell on the rear wall of the churches in the Middle Ages, the God who looks on us with judgment. We don't like it. It makes us feel uncomfortable, to say the least. 
And I want to acknowledge the problem. I, I, I feel that problem. I want to acknowledge that these are not just what you feel, but what I feel as well. And before we resolve, resolve that, that issue, we do have to notice that there is a kind of goodness in the God of judgment. Because a God of judgment really cares about justice. And a God of, God of judgment will do something about it. God, God cannot put up with oppression, with the trampling of the poor, with child sacrifice, with unjust wars and murder and genocide. God hates those things. He hates the behaviour of many men toward women, as I mentioned earlier. He hates human violence and suffering. And only a God who cares enough to judge can really hate those things. The thing is that Old Testament scholars agree that prophecy, like Hulda's here, isn't fatalistic or deterministic. That is, her words about the nation are probably a description of the nation as it stands at this point. The king definitely wanted reform. The people seemed to want their idols. They wanted their greed, their oppression, their sacrifice, even of their children if need be. And if they too turned around, if they too tore their clothes, then judgment could have been averted. Now we do see a glimmer of mercy in the story. We see a glimpse of it in the word to Josiah. We see a God of right judgment, but also a God of mercy and forgiveness, even in a small way. Many Christians that I've spoken to struggle to see how the God of the Old Testament, who seems angry and judgmental and retributive, can be the same God of the New Testament, the God of love and forgiveness. I mean, how can we call this the same God? How can the love of the New Testament depiction of God meet the anger and resultant sorrow for us of the Old Testament God? And which image, which depiction is right, which informs our faith, which is the hope for the world, the God who comes in fire and judgment or the God who comes in love and mercy? Theologians speak about the attributes of God, the different descriptions of his character. You know, he's got his love, his power, holiness, justice, mercy, and so on. But theologians also agree and have for, for thousands of years that God cannot be divided. These are not parts of God. If they were parts, he would be something of a creature himself. He would be a construction himself of these different parts. Instead, the different attributes must be different angles on the same thing. His love must be his justice, his Anger must be his mercy, his holiness must be his power. And yet the New Testament says more than anything else that God is love. He doesn't have love, he is love. Well, how does this work? Because of this. Next slide, please. Here we see what Josiah couldn't. Here we see the judgment of God. Here we see the anger of God. We see the disaster spoken about in 2 Kings 22. But we see it arrive on God himself. We see judgment fall not on his people, but on his own body, broken for us. Here we see the infinite love of God in giving up himself for us all. We see the mercy and forgiveness of all our sins and of our world's sins. We see Hulda's two oracles come together at this moment. Disaster for Judah. There it is. 
We see the unquenched fury of God at the injustice of the world. And at the same moment, we see the love and mercy of the same God who takes it all upon himself so that there is forgiveness, full forgiveness that might flow to us all. God is love. His justice is his love. His anger is his love. It makes sense when you see the cross. His power and his holiness is love. And we see it right here. God is not the permissive, desperate parent, and he's not the ever-watching, hating, judging eyes. In the cross, we have the only true depiction of God, the God who loves each of us infinitely enough to sacrifice himself for us. And so to that student who asked, doesn't God send disaster because people have sinned? I said, no, God sent disaster on himself because we sinned. Hallelujah. Well, the story today took us to the great King Josiah, to his honest desire to bring his nation back onto the right path. We see the word of God speaking of judgment and of mercy. We see a king who is the hope of the nation, and yet already we've been cast into the future to see a greater king who understands the coming together of judgment and mercy only too well. Now, I, I struggle to have right depictions of God here. I, I know them in my head, but so often I find myself thinking and acting in ways that either sees him as the permissive parent or the angry judge. And today I want to invite you to join me in coming again to the foot of the cross in implanting that image so deep in our minds and our hearts that we would know the true love of God. We would know in our lives, the freedom and joy of a God who has given up his life for us and rose again for our eternal life. And so in the words of the great hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, we sing these words, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Did, did judgment and mercy ever come together in, in, in a way like this? Did God's anger and love ever join? Did ever love, such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose such ri- so rich a crown? Beautiful words. And then, and this is what I want to leave us with today, that the final verse, which is the real call of our, on our lives, says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen and praise to God.